This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. Welcome back to the VIP Podcast. This is Chris Saxman, your host. I'm the Executive Director of Virginia Free, and this is also also brought to you by collaboration with VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia. And this is our VIP, VIP Podcast with our brand new VIP delegate, Emily Brewer. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here with you. Um, there's some changes going on, not just politically, but personally, which one do you want to lead off with here? I mean, okay, elephant in the room is my husband, Andy, and I are having a baby in November, so. There we go. Congratulations. <laughs> We're do, we know what, do we know what it is? It's very exciting. We are having a little girl. Oh, um, that's and we are very, very excited. And I think that uh, Andy said he needs a larger bourbon collection. So, so maybe you give him some really good girl dad advice. As a father of two girls and two boys, I can tell him he's going to need less expensive bourbon, but more of it because he won't be able to afford <laughs> much. Girls, I love them, but they're expensive. I'm, and <laughs> and I and I'm an, and I'm a total pushover, and I'm and I love my girls, but you know. <laughs> we'll, ways so i hear that boys are expensive no. uh, consistently with sports equipment no. and the girls get super expensive and it doubles in cost past 13. well so our, our uh we go 29 26 22 20. um so they're all in their 20s right now i can tell you without without any having to go into the the, the banks of, of memory here uh girls are they're they're emotional and more expensive and boys are quiet and more physical uh, but there's all there's there's drama with both and they're but they're both if both thrill right i can't i can't i couldn't ever pick one over the other we always make jokes but you know i'm a, i'm i'm a, uh they're my girls and uh, i love them dearly <laughs> well, we decided is i always grew up with the dog and so it's so important for us to make sure that uh, we have a dog she's 14 and so we decided we probably need to go and get a puppy too so we decided to get a puppy Bernese Mountain Dog, um, so that way our little girl has a puppy to grow up with. Mm, um, puppy and a baby. Mm, we mm. decided let's go for it all. Why not? I'm I'm gonna <laughs> withhold commentary there. Now it's gonna it's I'm sure it's a wonderful family and you're gonna have a great time doing it. And I wish you and and your baby and your husband nothing but a great experience and a healthy and a healthy outcome for all uh obviously those have been uh, big issues that have come up in the world of politics today let's talk about a little bit more more personal not more personal than having a baby but uh what are your favorite books movies tv shows what do you what do you like out there how do we people relate to you and understand emily brewer delegate okay so this is crazy pretty much even before i was elected i had never really been a tv watcher um i i am more of a reader Okay. Um, I will say that right now, though, like if I have to have some downtime late at night, um, we're finishing the last couple episodes of Stranger Things. Okay. Um, yeah. So Stranger Things is pretty good. It's like that, you know, all the hot gossip on the Twitter. So the Twitter. Um, the so we're watching that. And then we're really not huge TV people, but um, I love documentaries. I know that's really, really nerdy. Um, Guilty. Yeah, so one of the um, recent documentaries, I actually rewatched it. Um, it's called Wild Wild Country. 
Okay. So, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's on Netflix. It's absolutely incredible. Okay. Um, it's, it, it's just crazy. It's kind of this almost cult that takes over an Oregon town and their government. And it happened in the eighties. And oh, was, this, was this the, um, the, the Bhagwan? Yeah, 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 yeah. I did start watching that. Uh, didn't hold my attention beyond a certain level of, oh, God, here we go. So, like, you got to get to, like, the set late in the second episode because it slow mm -hmm. ramps up, but it is yeah. so worth it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, do you watch biographical documentaries on Netflix? Not not really. I probably will once I get towards the end of this pregnancy thing. I'm going to use Netflix a little more, but uh, mm. no. Two, just, two I would recommend to everyone listening and yourself. Uh, David Foster and Quincy Jones, two of the greatest uh, music producers in history and their documentaries are absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend them highly enough. They're, they're just so good, so I'm good. i list. If you can help me compile a list, you know, when I had a little downtime. When, when you, if, if you know any music in the 80s and 90s, back into the 70s as well, David Foster probably produced it. And, and the, his uh, catalog, of discography and artists is just is legendary and i never heard of the guy before this i just wasn't into that music at that level and i and, and just about every time someone comes to visit the house I'm like you've got to watch this documentary and they're like oh my god it's just it's it's the span of earth wind and fire to michael buble and celine dion and whitney houston and um everything in between it's just it's chicago it's just crazy did you see the queen documentary Love it. Love oh it. it's so incredible i did see that and like i am so like for my age, I should be ashamed that my pop culture trivia is like, it's terrible. That's because you've probably been working, working hard and uh, doing, doing your job. And people, people, that's one of the reasons I ask these questions. I've, I've gotten away from the last several episodes, uh, but it really connects people. Um, I found out several of, um, of your Democratic colleagues in the House are huge baseball guys. Don Scott in particular, um, uh, Cliff, uh, oh gosh, Cliff's last name. Cliff Hayes, Cliff Hayes, you know, we talked baseball. Uh, I was confusing him obviously with Clint Jenkins who's uh, uh, gonna be running in the same Senate district as you are, but those are connecting points for us. And uh, we need that so much in today's society, especially in politics. What's that? I'm really, I'm, I'm a baseball person, but I'm really a football person. Okay, what, what are your favorite teams? Okay, so this is embarrassing. Um, so I grew up all my life in Suffolk, but my dad's side is from outside of Cleveland. They're from a very rural area. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up as a Browns and an Indians fan. Wow. Um, okay. I, I love the Cleveland Browns. I know it's really shocking. Um, but you know what? I'm an underdog kind of girl, so <laughs> kind of fits my whole theme in life. Well, I, I uh, as a Steeler fan, I can't thank you enough for supporting the Cleveland Browns and uh, helping us get an even better position for the playoffs every year. Every year. You guys have been great. You know what? It's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> you have no, well, you see, what you have to understand, though, growing up as a Steeler fan, when I, when I first became a Steeler fan, was like, actually, I was a Steeler fan before my parents even met. It was preordained. Uh, the Browns just obliterated us in the 50s and the 60s. And so we hated the Browns. We hated Art Modell. And I can still remember being in my grandmother's uh, bedroom cheering the Steelers on when we're one in 13 uh, against the Browns and getting and just getting annihilated by the Browns. And then it turned in the 70s and then it has been like gangbusters ever since. So but that's that's the part of connecting people and understanding where they come, where they really come from. And you don't under, we don't get to know that too much in today's politics. And I think it's a real shame. Oh, it totally is. And and speaking of the Steelers, I think that, you know what, there, there's some really good players, I, I think, that end up in the Steelers that I'd love to follow over the year. Troy Palomalu, I love so very much in his spirit. Like, 
probably one of my favorite Steelers. Um, but you know, there is nothing that I dislike more than Art Medell and really the Ravens, because I mean, that's what happened uh, when the Browns shut down the franchise yep. uh, back in the late nineties. Oh, yeah. And like the Steelers are secondary to like my hatred. <laughs> of, the, of the Ravens that's fantastic because I hate the Ravens twice just like you do they're the old Browns and the new Baltimore so I get to hate it twice and my and my and my my wife's from Baltimore so it gets a little dicey during the during the holidays <laughs> hiding in your basement if you have one let's uh let's jump into politics delegate Emery Emily Brewer not finishing uh you're finishing out your term in the house right I am but you're not seeking re-election to the house I am not. I am uh, going to hopefully knock on wood if I work really hard, um, the Virginia Senate. So um, my house district was, you know, one of the ones that was affected uh, in redistricting. Um, it went from a more Republican leaning seat to really a toss up, okay. uh, a little bit underwater, honestly. But the real reason I wanted to run for the Senate, and this is such a, a regional thing for me, is I grew up all my life in Suffolk. And right. so I'm going to be running in a Senate seat where I'm going to get to represent where I went to high school in the neighborhood I grew up, which I didn't get to do before. Okay. Um, oh yeah, which I'm stoked. I've already represented all of Alouette County. Um, before the 2018 lawsuit, I was in the house like a year and um, there was the lawsuit. So I went from parts of seven localities to four. I mean, and I didn't even get a chance to really represent those people very long, but I had Southampton County before. And so naturally, I feel like keeping Western Tidewater together um, and then adding some localities to the West, it just gives me a really strong sense of keeping my whole community together. And the newly drawn house seat really didn't do that. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, it, things change. I mean, every 10 years, we, we scramble the deck chairs. Not this is a Titanic, but we scramble the deck chairs. Um, your move to the Senate will have to take place in 2023 with, in a victory uh, over Clint Jenkins, I guess, as your as your looks to be that your, your primary, not your primary, but your 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 main opponent, uh, your general election opponent. Are you are you challenged at all in the in the in the nomination phase? I, I'm not challenged yet. I'm sure that probably him and myself will probably pick up somebody. I mean, okay. every time, like you say, when they reshuffle the deck chairs, um, somebody comes along, but. You know, I know my work ethic and I know how hard I worked um, and I know that I put my all into what I do. So um, I think that my body of work really speaks for itself. And, you know, I have a passion, um, you know, COVID really taught me so much more. And I think the community so much more about who their representatives were because all of a sudden they had a real life crisis that they were trying to figure out, whether it's VEC or DMV or mental health issues mm -hmm. or just learning to navigate state agencies in a really, really difficult time. Right. And so that really allowed myself and my office to really elevate and just absolutely kill it for, you know, two years. And we just got to naturally connect with people. And um, it really reminded me of why we do what we do, you know? Yeah, it's, um, I fall back on some of those anecdotes myself every once in a while. You, you, you catch a little something that reminds you like, oh yeah, we did X, Y, and Z, but the state government is something you really have to stay on top of all the time because with the problems of the Virginia Employment Commission, uh, you've got Medicaid concerns coming up. You've got massive amounts of new Medicaid um, eligible recipients out there. We're almost at 2 million now in Virginia. Uh, with those increases comes a, the obvious clash that's going to happen in the general fund against K through 12. A lot of problems, even though we're flush with cash right now. What do you, what do you think you're going to have to do to get ahead of what's coming? 
So, you know, we, we can talk about inflation or all those things, but we did some really responsible things in this year's budget. Um, you know, I was on uh, appropriations last term and this term, and uh, this year um, I was selected to be a budget conferee. And so we really had to take <laughs> You're walking away from a budget conferee to go to the Senate? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can always climb up the ladder again, right? Yeah, well, no, hopefully, you know, I mean, you get the same opportunity. You never know. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, I got, I got, I worked hard, but I've worked really, really hard to get where I'm at and to just study and learn and work on policy. But this year, sure. Um, I was a chair of the VRS and Compensation and Retirement Committee on Appropriations. Wow. And we did something. We put half a billion dollars into the retirement system that had really not been put there before. So, you know, just because we were flush with cash doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities. Yeah. Um, so the unfunded liabilities we had for state employees, whether it was mm -hmm. teachers or it was, you know, um, just the basic VRS retirement plan, we really had to get those numbers up and making sure there's unfunded liabilities. Uh, you know, the average age of a state employee right now is 54. And so just imagine if we didn't make that investment, right? Oh, yeah. What's the, uh, where, where are we, where's Virginia as far as being, making whole the pension obligations that we have? As a percentage, where are we? As of right now, we went from, and, and so we break it down by categories, but we sure. went somewhere in the 60s to the 70s and 80s, depending on Okay. Um, uh, what different category it was. And that is a huge difference considering, you know, we're upside down over 50, if you will, with the average that's, age of someone that can retire. That's, that's, that's scary for state employees you're trying to retain or recruit when you can say, yeah, we got a great retirement plan, but it's only 60% funded. Well, just think about this is, in, you know, we always say in the general assembly, unintended consequences is what we talk about. Sure. But some people don't understand how that trickles down into affecting somebody's life. And so right. um, when say, if qualified immunity would have been repealed last session before we took back the majority. So just imagine qualified immunity goes away. Law enforcement officers are afraid of the personal liability they would have to assume. Anyone who was probably eligible for retirement at that point was out the door. Absolutely. It, state police they have a huge number a huge percentage i want to say it's like a fourth of their workforce that can retire um and other agencies are like that so just imagine one policy decision like that changes yeah. and all of a sudden you have a huge swath of people retiring that affect the drs immediately well and it especially with the the pull to go into other careers at this point with the the negative press that the police were getting uh it couldn't have helped um, but to get in there and just reinforce those pension programs. But you still have, with an aging workforce, you still have a lot of problems in, in, in the short term from a retention standpoint. There's no question about that. Well, and we made some pretty historic investments. I'd also say the rainy day fund um, mm -hmm. we really needed to make because just because you have cash for now doesn't mean that we will be in this position forever. You know, this was a very unique circumstance. Um, I think the tax cuts are going to be huge. I think being able to achieve the military retirement piece up to the first 40,000 will be absolutely huge because what that's going to make is the difference of someone who retires in Virginia from one of our major installations being able to decide to stay here instead of going south to Florida or north to wherever they go. So, um, well, I mean, those are usually the retirees in the military are, are relatively young. I mean, they get in in their early mid 20s by the time they're 20, 25 years is up, they're, they're not even 50 yet. And they've got 
at least 15, 20 good years of uh, employment uh, possible for, for them and their families. And we hope they start their second career in Virginia. Right. It's more of a second. It's more of a. It's more of a second career move, isn't it, for our workforce? Rather than saying we want to give retired veterans a break. I mean, it's, it's a combination. But the reality, from a workforce development standpoint, is you need well-trained, good people in your workforce, and keeping those well-trained veterans here in Virginia or attracting them back to Virginia is a critical component of economic development. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have four of the five major military contractors. I'm sure you've seen at press releases in recent months that are, are um, coming back into Virginia or enhancing their presence in Virginia. So if we don't answer the workforce uh, piece to this, you know, how long do they stay? Is that temporary or is that long-term? I think that's- Well, it, and, and unfortunately in today's day and age, it's more necessary than ever, I think, because we've had such a, a spreading out of our people away from our families. You said you're from, originally families from rural, Ohio, up around the Cleveland area. My family is originally from Pittsburgh. It's a tie that binds us, but you know, yet we're spread out. I think my my family now is in you know, California, Arizona, North Carolina. I mean, that's just off the top of my head. My like my cousins and uncles and that and that level. I mean, the majority of our my core family is in Virginia. Uh, you know, but but that comes and goes. We've got a couple in Pittsburgh right now. We got some in South Carolina. We come and go, but having those people come back and create a community through our neighborhoods is critically important to our society. Well, and you know, I don't know anything really different besides visiting my dad's family. But I grew up all my life, but six months in a you know Suffolk, Virginia, and I the only reason I wasn't here the first six months is because I got adopted. So, um, you really? know. Yeah, I was adopted from the state of Ohio. Um, my parents wow. were children, and so they fostered for years. And then they ended up getting a call one day, and they said, hey, do you want this little girl? She's available. And so after about 10 days in foster care, uh, they picked me up. And I had a new- it's Six months, you were adopted. So I was, I was adopted just past my 10th day. Um, but they had to stay in the state. They were moving to Virginia, back to Virginia, anywhere where, I'm, where my mom's from. Wow. So they had to stay a couple of months to finalize paperwork before they could move back to Suffolk here. So. Wow. Talk about that journey. Has it been one for you? I mean, what's what's that? I mean, typically, you don't people don't they just don't run across. You probably walk past people who have been adopted all around you. But you have had TV shows of people reconnecting with their birth families, those kinds of things. And as, especially as a lawmaker now, when you're looking at policies, foster care, child care and the like, uh, even the life issue, these all come into play. Talk about that for a second, if you could. So it's kind of funny when I first ran in 2017, um, one of the things I was most passionate about talking about was adoption foster care reform. At the time, Virginia was 49 to 50. Um, I wanted to make it easier for people to adopt. I remember hearing other people around me because I was adopted tell me how difficult it is really across the country, um, but how extremely difficult it has also been in Virginia. And so when I ran, I talked about it. And you know how like consultants or other people say, oh, I don't know if that's a top of mind issue. I said, look, um, sometimes you can talk about policy. Sometimes you can talk about passion. Sometimes they can be one and the same. And so you would never believe the doors I knocked on when I would talk about, you know, all the, the key quote Republican talking points, but when they asked me what else I was passionate about and I would tell them, you never have any idea how much adoption or foster care touches people. Right. And um, after my first session, so every year I've carried adoption foster care legislation for reform. Um, I'm this year's chair of the Commission on Youth, and okay. that's one of our uh, key initiatives. Um, and I'm going to be doing some recommendations on the Safe and Sound Task Force as well. 
But after my first year, the first bill I ever passed um, was working on reducing um, the term in which to adopt, the, the time limit on adoption. And so uh, that was my first bill I ever passed. And then a couple months later, I'm walking in a restaurant and this guy stops me. And um, I was like, hi, how are you? He was like, you're Emily, right? I was like, yeah. He was like, I want you to meet somebody. I'll be right back. And I'm thinking, oh man, like, what did I do now? What did I do now? <laughs> I, I hated those moments. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> because we reduced the time and we expanded the definition of family right. to and nephews and things. Right. He brought over his nephew and he was like, because of the legislation you carried, we got to adopt him. Wow. I was like, no, oh, is that lump in the throat time or what? This is why we do what we do. That's that's oh. what makes it. Yeah. Like, oh. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> Damn onions. Yeah. But you know, it's that's what makes it worth it. Uh yeah, I could uh, we there's been a couple of those moments that I think back that are that are quite moving. Um I read an article today, and I don't know if it was in Axios Richmond or maybe one of the other public online newsletters I get every day about the cost of bearing a child and how expensive it really is to, to have a child. I mean, just not just raising a child, which is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars these days and going to get more so, which is a, you know, a heavy load for, uh, for anyone. Uh, what could, I mean, is, it, is this an area where state governments should get involved and start trying to bring down those costs? I mean, we talk about the pro-life, pro-choice um, converse, you know, conversation. That's a very touchy issue. Obviously, we're going through that conversation right now as a nation. But what, I mean, really, what can we do to create more of a culture of welcoming children and saying, yeah, this is, this is, this is not going to be that bad. You know, we can help out. Well, I think that we have to create an environment where, um, like, so for instance, you know, I, I'm thinking through this. So just say I'm an employee. I'm not a legislator, but still I have a job to do. Right. right. So I have a baby in November. Uh, it's my first. And I'm going to have to figure out in between like Thanksgiving and Christmas, how to like kind of be a mom. And then I'm going to go back to the general assembly with my baby. Yes, and, you are. Yeah. And like, I'm already working on a plan for that. And I think yeah. that, you know, going through this process now is really eye opening for me. Right. Right. Um, I'm, I'm 38 um, and yeah. I'm now, you know, I think it helps that I'm a little bit older and I'm thinking through, you know, the structure of life, but right. I've got to be honest is making sure that there are employers out there that are willing to be, you know, flexible and understanding. And I think COVID has really opened up yeah, we have. the flexibility of so many employers. Right. Uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll never forget uh, my first year in, uh, Michelle was pregnant. I don't know how we managed that during the campaign, but yet. Um, you know, John was born June 1st of my first session and it was a great out for my first year. Oh, I got to go, Michelle, you know, we don't, you know, pregnant, this kind of stuff. They're, okay, go, go, go. I was like, but the reality hit, this is number four and it's a lot during session. I can't, I mean, honestly, as, as a guy, I can't imagine having to bring your child into the general assembly building, which is gonna be brand new. And it'll be like, much healthier than <laughs> that abomination that we had to live in uh, from a health standpoint. I don't know if I brought my child in there in those formative years and, 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 and nursed and fed it, but, you know, oh, whew. Um, but does that bring into the conversation a deeper understanding and a commitment to, to doing something a little bit different than what we've been doing politically? Well, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky to some degree. So, you know, my, my husband um, works in Richmond. Um, we live, oh about an hour and 10 minutes from Richmond. And so um, during the week, he'll be able to stay with me there. And oh. 
really have like a whole teammate situation. Oh, that's fantastic, Emily. That's, that's awesome. Huge. Um, you have, wait, 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 wait. You have no idea how you said it. So no, no, I think God. I do actually. Um, I'm really excited. And, uh, you know, we have family help too, which is really awesome. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're, all of us come from different backgrounds, different walks of life and different perspective. And, um, you know, I would say 10 years ago in politics, uh, someone would say, oh, well, she's having a baby. Maybe she shouldn't run for office, right? Right. Yeah, someone would say that. I think now it's more empowering than it's ever been. This Absolutely. Level. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 the, was the first thing from my mind when you said that, uh, you know, why would you do that? I mean, you can't do both. I mean, in today's day and age, yeah, everyone wants to help out. That's sort of my point is how can we develop a society that says we want to be far more welcoming of having children versus having the debate, right? You want to have it, I guess there was a, I don't guess, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal written by a Catholic, uh, uh, was a cardinal or, a, or an archbishop in, in America saying we need, to, we need to create a culture in which abortion is unthinkable, which is what you know, his, his, his faith is leading him to. It was like, why would you think that? But if you have to have the level of support services that surround the, the, the mother to, to have the child in, in situations that they're, sometimes are, are, are difficult. So I would say this, is that you have to have a team. I mean, right. having a child in today's world is a serious undertaking. It's not an afterthought. Um, while this is definitely a surprise to us, we're very excited. Oh, really? Oh, that's great. Yeah. At 38, we surprise. Um, but you know what, everything in life really happens for a reason. And, and for me, yeah. um, being able to just like take this as part of my life, this adds to, you know, my unique experience, you know, um, last year I was, or this earlier this year, I became chair of the commission on youth and someone's like, you don't even have kids, but you care about them. And I was like, I do, but now I'm like, yeah, I get to be a mom. So I'm going to have these new life experiences that are going to contribute to that. I will say this though is that, yeah, I'm certainly pro-life, but I also think when you say that you're pro-life, that comes with a responsibility. Absolutely. And that comes with the way that I feel about reforming adoption, reforming the foster care system. I've worked on human trafficking. In fact, 60% right. of children that go missing in foster care end up being human trafficked. So like there are all of these rails of society that fall apart when we don't do the right thing. Right, and, absolutely. You know, I think working on some of those guardrails really truly will improve our society and, and our outcomes. Well, I wish you the very best in, uh, in that experience. Um, prayers go out for health. I, I remember, gosh, uh, <laughs> I'd throw John in that papoose, the, the backpack shoulder thing, and I, I'd go to political events. I think it was a, might've been a convention at one point, like in Harrisonburg or whatever. And I walked up there and gave a speech with John on my back, literally. <laughs> and everyone's like, what the hell? <laughs> I mean Michelle's working. I got the kids. You know, I have my responsibility. I'm, I'm dragging four kids at this thing and one on my back, you know? <laughs> People don't want a perfect politician. They want, no. especially when it's at the House of Delegates or the State Senate, they want someone that's relatable that's like them. Exactly. And, and I think that that's why, you know, I've, I've done decently well. Like July 4th, we walked like over the weekend, we walked like eight or 10 miles in parades as a family. That's fun. And it's fun and we make it part of our every day. We don't make it a chore. Right. And, um, being able to do it as a team is obviously a, a huge deal, but also being able to, like, I haven't been sick, not one day. And I'm sure 
you know, there's some hateful people out there that would yeah, be you like, keep that one to yourself. I, know, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't. For lucky, I'm all the and I haven't been a little too authentic there. Uh, Emily, you want to keep that one to yourself. <laughs> I know it's bad. Um, I mean, it's a blessing that you're healthy. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a wonderful thing. I mean, other people have very, very difficult pregnancies as, as we know, and have heard uh, some difficult stories and we wish you the best in that regard. What, um, what are you what are you hearing from your constituents these days when you go out and knock on doors or answer the phone or emails what what's what's forward in people's minds honestly i i think that it, i hate to say inflation but people are truly really in, affected by inflation and you know 9.1% today right know, June, 9.1% inflation but you know and everyone wants to talk about like oh it's not a big deal it's not this it's not that what? um <laughs> I just went and bought dog food before I did the podcast with you. Holy cow, I think dog food's gone up like 27%. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. We, I mean, we go uh, just to buy, you know, we're, we, we've changed our diets as we've gotten older, pretty much vegetables, fish, chicken, that's kind of thing. Uh, and you just go, how much for a uh, head of cauliflower? How much How much for Brussels sprouts? How much for chicken? You got to be kidding me. I mean, it's, you know, four or $5 for chicken, a pound. It's, I mean, in inflation really, truly it's going to be a huge effect on our midterms. Um, it's going to affect us into next year and people are making life decisions right now. I mean, it, it, it affects all of us, whether we are you know, middle-class or whether we're poor or whether we are moderately well-to-do. I mean, I come from a, a normal everyday background, but you know, I, I have pause for concern. I went and bought dog food. I'm like, holy cow, was the price wrong? Right. No, you do a double take and you start changing behaviors. It's, it's, it's completely legitimate and expected. And we're going to see a lot of things changing in our society as a result. Like you think about what have you cut out or what have you changed? Like, so I'm not drinking coffee right now, so I've cut that out. But I mean, the little extra stops I used to make during the day, I've just cut those out. Oh, I, you know, I drive less intentionally. You know, whereas, because especially coming out of the pandemic, you wanted to get out and go do things. It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to phone this one in or I'm going to hop on a Zoom call. I don't need to get there right away. You know, um, and the flights I'm booking. Wow. It's cheaper to go. It's cheaper to fly to London than it is to Denver. That's nuts. Nuts. <laughs> and it's not even close. It's not even close because the dollar is so strong over in Europe right now uh, that you can get a cheap flight to, to go to London. But if you want to go anywhere past Dallas, the, the cost is just through the roof. It's, 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 it's incredible. Cost of a family vacation. Is, so one of my constituents, he actually shared this with me. Um, so he, uh, his wife used and him sometimes in fall will take their camper. They'll go to parks out West. Yeah. And uh, he also has ties to Italy. And so he said, um, it is cheaper for me to fly to Italy and stay for a couple of weeks than it is for me to gas up and go out west. Yep. And yep. like, that's, that's. It, it changes behaviors. I mean, it, it, you just change your behavior. Um, eating out less, um, that comes with it. Not having a glass of wine when you go out. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to pass on that because the other entrees and the, you know, the vegetables are popping up there. It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to manage that. You manage your costs down. Um, um it's just different, you know, at our stage of life because our kids are out of the house, but they're moving back. <laughs> I can't have wine right now. I'm saving a little bit, but what's that? Since I can't have wine right now, you know, my business is saving a little bit, but you know, the cost of wine has definitely gone up. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, but people. But the point is, people are changing their behaviors. You, you're talking uh, before we went on here about uh, maybe it was while we were on. You're you're owing your husband a, a, a Braves game because of the. 
you want to go to the, the election night celebration in 2021, you know, take a look at that number. That's going to be like, uh, we're not going to get those seats. We're going to get these seats, you know? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we have a responsibility because there is so much next year that we're still going to have to peel back the layers of what people didn't do. Right. So what happens when we have inflation? Um, There are people that can't afford to drive to work. Mm -hmm. There are some people that are going to have to decide whether they choose feeding their families over, you know, seeking medical care. I mean, I mean, the lower end of the economic scale is the one who's getting absolutely punished by inflation, punished, suppressive. And it's, it's, it's not going to let up anytime soon. And I think that we have a responsibility and, you know, uh, I, I would never in a million years want to be one of the 435 in Congress, but I will tell you this is that they, they have an undertaking to truly address, um, everything that they've done to the economy and the truth. Well, I mean, can you, and, and this is, this is the unfortunate thing we get to in the, in the world of politics. We get into the blame and shame that my wife likes to, um, accurately portray our society sometimes being a, a society of blame and shame and blame doesn't solve a problem um, it redirects the conversation in an unhealthy way and people have been trying to blame putin for the price hikes and gasoline which is which is bravo sierra uh, the, the, i think the, a lot of it falls on the federal reserve and the monetary policy that they're pushing around there but we also have a fiscal problem in washington dc they're shoving out way too much money it's causing you know demand pressures and supply strains um, what can we do at the state level? What, what's the General Assembly? What, are they, what do you think they should do? Y'all so, should do. I think there's a couple of things that we have to do. Um, and, and this is not just something that can be fixed in one or two years. And, and that's just the candid truth. Um, so for instance, I live in a very rural area. And so one of the things that I've heard a lot from my farmers is the cost of fertilizer has gone through the roof. It's quadruple, right? Um, the majority wow. of fertilizer is made in Ukraine, Russia, believe in Poland, um, and then one other country. So a ton of it is made there. So obviously we have a supply chain issue. I'm sure you've seen the ships are hanging off the coast of China. Um, We have to increase traffic through our ports. Um, We have to make sure that we're trying to bring some of those things back domestically for production. Um, You know, I'm going to be having a conversation the next couple of weeks. So I'm a nerd. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Every year, you know, those pesky reports that uh, we always would ask bills to be done in the General Assembly and study this or study that. And then we have a study sitting there. So um, years ago, I wanna say it was maybe almost a decade ago, um, there was a study that was done on some of the natural resources we have in Virginia and the coastal plains region. We actually have phosphorus deposits in Virginia and we could produce fertilizer here. Can you imagine what that would do with bringing down the cost to our farmers domestically? Well, I think I think we need I think our legislators in the states and the federal have to have a clear understanding of where our national liabilities are. We got so wrapped up into global trade, which is a good thing. I'm not going to knock it at all. But when you extend the problem, you extend it out so much that you become vulnerable, like we did on all the, the, the pharmaceuticals and the stuff that came out in the, in, the, uh, in the pandemic. We really do need to take an inventory of where we are vulnerable and start addressing because the phosphorus is just not going to be in Virginia. It's going to be in Carolinas. It's going to be in Georgia. It's going to be somewhere else that we can produce these things and be competitive, at least hedge the bet against our, our foreign adversaries who are frankly messing with the markets, especially Russia and China. 
Well, and we really need to think about how much production that we've sent overseas and how much that we could truly bring back at, at a fair at a fair cost, right? Because we know that a lot of those things head overseas because of you know the difference in labor costs and things of that nature. But now that we've seen these vulnerabilities, we really have to hone in on, on what are our top five or 10 things that we can ship away, especially in Virginia, with the resources we have that directly affect the industries that we, we have here in the Commonwealth. I mean, peanuts are a big thing down my way, but they're all huge exports. Yeah. Um, and, and so anything that is touching some of our major industries, we really have to think about how we harness that. Well, again, it's, it's, it's maybe an ass- a vulnerability assessment, you know, um, just, just to figure out the chips alone, the, uh, the, 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 the computer chips, uh, microprocessors, semiconductors, those kinds of things are just are brutally imperative for our, for our economy. And we are so farmed out to Taiwan and China on, on those critical infrastructure projects. I mean, the, the cars coming out today are nothing, nothing but chips and batteries these days. And our future of transportation and uh, technology is in the hands of foreign adversaries or hopefully foreign allies, but we need to make sure that we're taking care of and protecting our home economy. Well, and you know, it's, it's interesting you brought up the, the conductors. So um, Intel announced a $20 billion investment in Ohio to uh, right. bring back to American soil uh, conductor production. And I think that's going to be huge for America, but it's more things like that. We need to chip away at, right. uh, you know, if we're getting, if we're getting past 40 or 50% production on foreign reliance for certain industries, we really need to think of if we had a moment of crisis, whether it's a worldwide pandemic or if, uh, you know, God forbid a war or something that will truly affect global trade, we really need to have a threat assessment because that's just as important as Homeland Security. I think that, you know, this pandemic has really, really opened up uh, kind of those wounds almost just like a war would. And, and do you think that this is a, a role for the state government to play the General Assembly and you're running for the state Senate? Delegate Brewer? I think I think that each state uh, collectively has a, a responsibility to really do their own individual assessment of, of what their, uh, you know, their uh, weaknesses their threat assessment and also their strengths are. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the strength of Virginia isn't the strength of Arizona or Wyoming. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's true. Don't get me started. I just I just wrote a column on the CNBC rankings. <laughs> what a load of dung that thing is! Holy cannoli. Well, and you know what? That's the thing is that you look at some of the stuff. <laughs> it's just, I can't. Uh, it's awful. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just riled up. <laughs> oh no, it's awful. I mean, I went I went and looked at the methodologies. They're so different from year to year. I mean. How do you have an economic development plan when the like the the leading ranking uh, uh, group or co- uh, company in the country that all the economic development officers in the, in the world look at go oh Virginia's number one or three and this that word this that and the other thing the the methodologies change year to year it's unbelievable it's a flawed system flawed Bravo Sierra. <laughs> not even flawed would be an upgrade (laughs) kind of like some of those like uh weekly contests where you know you have all your friends vote right it's just so i mean i mean i looked at i'm like okay we went to three and last year i I took a took a bit of a hammer to it and i'm like guys you really got to tighten this stuff up because if you're going to be known as the ranking agency the ranking you know authority because it always comes out in the middle of summer and i looked at i'm like uh, no, last year was was, real, was not great because they added in the life, health, and inclusion category and made it number three with a really big number in the metrics. This year they added cryptocurrency and cannabis as it's metrics. Tanking. 
What's that? Cryptocurrency is tanking. Like what? Right, because you know they had to like do this these, these metrics last year because they they and they they lowered the uh, the importance of cost of doing business and cost of living. So they did this before inflation took off, right? So you're telling me Dogecoin is affecting our ranking. I'm just kidding. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it is. It's, it's it's crazy to me, but you know what? Like especially with supply chain shortages and a pandemic, I I almost they didn't do it in 2020, and I honestly don't think they really should have done it in 2021 because there are so many extenuating circumstances to each state um, that that can only be so much under control. And so that's why they have to go. Like, we did the same metrics year to year just to show you what happened, the difference, and we'll rank them the same way or some modest differences and shifts X, Y, and Z. And I wouldn't have the same metrics. I just wouldn't. I just think they overcomplicate this thing. They have 88 metrics. I'm like, 88 metrics? Come on. It, it's, it's, it basically is where's money going and where are people moving? That's about it. That's, that'll show you everything you need to know. College rankings too, you know? It's, What's that? It's not, it, about the same they do the U.S. college rankings, right? It's the same concept. Let's just let's just let's just change the formula so everyone like barks and jumps at these different food bits to go. Oh, I want to be this. You know, need to have a climbing wall. Ur, ur, ur. You, know. you know. You know. One of the things that we really can do better in Virginia, honestly, is I I feel very strongly about this. Is so you represent how many localities when you're in the house? Uh, localities or like jurisdictions, like like. Because localities have all the towns, right? So, right. You know, so it was Highland County, uh, Stanton, Augusta County, and Rockingham County, but also had the town of Bridgewater. Um, and other, there wasn't too many other towns, but yeah, you know, so it's like half a dozen. So one of the things that I've always been very passionate about is trying to figure out ways to really take everybody's unique own backyard and find synergies, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we may not um, ha have the same needs or issues as say Southwest or the city of Norfolk, Clearly. but for me, finding legislation that's kind of one size fits all that might fit suburban or urban. Um, I know there's a couple different legislators, Republicans and Democrats for the past several years, really focused on um, economic development opportunities and legislation around that to really find incentives to encourage growth in areas where they had just really seen a downturn, whether it be a Petersburg or a Southwest or a Norfolk or a Richmond. Right. And doing things that are creative and innovative in Virginia to, you know, enhance or incentivize business, I think is absolutely huge. You know, in rural areas, we have land and you can't print any more of that. So, well, we can we can certainly incentivize productivity on on that, and I'd love to go into a deeper dive with you on that at some other time. Delegate Emily Brewer now running for the state senate, but we are sadly wah, wah, out of time. Uh, wish you the very best this year on a personal level, on a professional level. Always wish everyone the very best here on the VIP podcast, brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free, of which I am the executive director. Great to have you here, and welcome aboard for being a brand new. VIP. Delegate Emily Brewer. Thanks, Chris. Take care.